Good morning, church. As you may or may not know, I am not Pastor Adam. Um, But let's go ahead and pray because we serve a great God. Heavenly Father, you are great and mighty, and you are mighty to save. You are trustworthy even in the turbulent times of life. Lord, help us now, help our hearts, help our focus, help just remove any distractions. Um, Lord, be strong in my weakness, and may the result be many, many acts of faithfulness amongst these people. If people turn to Christ, people turn away from sin, and turn away to you who are great. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 77. I will be reading from the English Standard Version, but um, most other versions will read similarly. And we will read the entire psalm. Psalm 77, starting on verse 1. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in his anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all of your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the water saw you, O God, when the water saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the world when your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock 
by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Amen. Question. How do you know if God is for you? And how is that knowledge impacted by the events in our day-to-day lives? What about when tragedy strikes or there is sustained suffering? And by sustained suffering, I mean things are not getting better. Suffering is your new reality. How does God's response or lack thereof impact how you think about him? These are critical questions because we know by looking at the world around us that calamity and difficulty are no respecters of persons. In fact, Jesus promised that Christians, his followers, his brothers and sisters would face trouble and persecution in this life. Thankfully, God knows all. Amen. And he cares for us. So we have this psalm to help teach us to trust him in the midst of very difficult times. So here's the author's main idea. Run to God when trouble comes because him saving you proves that he is with you. The book of Psalms was a hymnal for the children of Israel. As is the case with any good collections of songs, there is a wide range of emotions on display in the Psalms. Surprisingly, perhaps the most frequent type of Psalm is a lament. So Pastor Adam has done a few of these um, over the last month or so. And as we've seen during his previous two sermons from the Psalms, these Psalms focus on living faithfully when times are very difficult. Psalms of lament reflect the deep distress that is so common in the human experience. Psalm 77 is one of a handful of psalms written by Asaph. It is definitely a psalm of lament, but unlike some of the other psalms, the specific trouble that the author is experiencing is not explicitly mentioned in the introduction or in the body of the psalm. Even though no specific trouble is referenced, we can see the impact of this trouble and what it did to the psalmist. So in this psalm, we see four main sections, and I have four points for us to be better prepared to trust God in the midst of suffering. Point number one, cry out to God in times of trouble. We see this in verses one through three. The psalmist cried aloud for he knew God would hear him. His prayer was emotional, desperate, and loud for he was in trouble. Now this is not your average run-of-the-mill prayer. This wasn't a rote prayer that you say before you eat or before you go to bed. This was the call of a drowning person to a lifeguard on the shore. This is desperation. And it's evident in the echoing of the phrase, aloud to God, twice in verse one. Aloud to God, aloud to God. A question for us, are we too dignified or too mature for such exuberance? Are we above desperation? Church, we have to fight against pride and self-sufficiency 
Because if we realized our neediness, our helplessness and utter dependency on God, we would pray more often and with more vigor. The psalmist was also confident that God would hear him. Being heard is a wonderful thing. Hearing someone when they come to you shows that they care for you. But we really want more than just someone hearing us. For example, people plan for years to try to get to the Supreme Court just to have the court hear their case and take up their cause. They know that the court has the power to rule in their favor and change everything about their situation. Similarly, the psalmist is not just looking for someone to talk to here. He wasn't looking for mere sympathy or empathy. No, he believed that God would hear his cry and would rescue him. He believed that God both cared about him and was strong enough to intervene on his behalf. Why? Because of covenant promises. Let's look at Psalm 34, verses 15 through 18. The psalm reads, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. This psalm is not unique. There are many places in the scripture that talk about God's willingness to answer, how he longs for us to come to him and for him to show his might on our behalf. So where do you turn to when times get tough? Who or what is your help when you are overwhelmed with difficulty? How do you deal with stress and drama that happens in our day-to-day lives? There's quite a range of things we could turn to from food, entertainment, alcohol, sex, or drugs. Even good things given to us by God for our enjoyment can be turned into an idol if we look to it to provide what we are only to look to God to provide. Some of you may not be Christians. You may know you should depend on God, but can't quite muster up the desire to change. Friend, cry out to God. Ask him to open your eyes that you may see who he truly is. Ask him to make things clear for you. And God is near. God is willing and able to save. Turn to him. Cry out to him. In verses 2 and 3, we see a continuation. We see that although he sought God diligently, he initially found no comfort. We see that he's praying with outstretched arms through the night. This is a common position for prayer in the Bible. It shows dependence upon God. It's like a a child looking to be picked up by his parent. Just 
pick me up. (laughs) I need you to lift me up. I, I can't get to what I need to. Pick me up. This is the position and the posture that he's in. He's looking to God. But if you've ever raised your hands for a long time, you know it's tiring. I'm reminded of Moses where uh, they were supposed to be fighting this other group and God promised that they would win. But in a kind of strange twist, God says to win, Moses must keep his hands lifted. And this is a long fight. I don't know if you've ever seen Braveheart or anything else. I mean, these are even shortened versions. This is long, long fighting. And Moses has to keep his arms lifted the whole time. He wants them to win. He knows God is faithful and will deliver them, but he still has to lift his hands. So what they did, they actually had a couple people help him to keep his hands lifted so that God would deliver them. This psalmist here is lifting his hands without wearying, even all through the night. That's the level of desperation that he has. He's not deterred. He's desperate, so he perseveres through the fatigue. But even with all of that, instead of relief, thoughts about God bring weariness. He moans when he remembers God. He knows how good God has been to him and to others in the past, how God has answered them, how great it felt to have his blessings. But as he meditates, his spirit faints. Have you ever fainted? I have. I actually fainted this past week as Harold's laughing. Uh, (laughs) I'm on a business trip. I just gave a presentation. I thought it was pretty good. Um, maybe that's why I fainted. I'm not sure. But, uh, all of a sudden I'm just kind of on the ground. I just fainted. I I don't know. I stayed up late, drank too much coffee. I don't know. It was just helplessness. You faint when you are overwhelmed, when you're exhausted, it shows our frailty. The psalmist went to God with this problem in his time of desperation but he was just as troubled as he was initially. If he was hoping for a quick fix, he didn't get it. Now it's at this point that we may be tempted to just try something else, right? Like people say, uh, you know, the definition of insanity is keep on doing the same thing and expecting a different result. Maybe we're thinking we're at this point now, right? He's tried it, he's done a lot of stuff, he's read his Bible, multiple times. He didn't just give a little prayer. He gave a lot of prayer. He prayed loudly. He sought God diligently. He really tried. And maybe that's you. Did you do everything you're supposed to do? You prayed to him consistently without ceasing, loudly and passionately. You thought of him, you meditated on him, and yet you're still left with the same circumstance? If that is you today, be encouraged that you're not alone. Know that God cares enough for you that he would have this psalm written to show that he knows how we feel and how we should respond. While the psalmist doesn't yet feel relieved, he still remembers, and he was confident that God would hear him. 
But what does he think God will do with that information? Because just because God hears him doesn't necessarily mean he will act on his behalf. It just means that he's listening. He's confident in that. Where does he go next? Point two. Continue seeking God even when the trouble doesn't go away. So now we're taken to a scene where he's at night. He can't sleep. He's restless. Look at the level of distress he's in. He's too disturbed to talk. His suffering has left him speechless. Perhaps lying there awake, his mind drifts to happier times of God's people experiencing goodness. He remembers these times when he sang songs of God's goodness well into the night. This is quite a contrast from his current state where he can't even speak. In past times at night, he's singing songs about how good God is. The psalmist continues searching diligently and comes to the following question. He's faced with the tough reality. Does my current trouble mean that God has turned his back on his people? Does God, is he spurning forever now? Will he never again be favorable? No more steadfast love ever again? Has he put an end to his promises? Has he forgotten to be gracious? Has his anger shut out compassion? We even get the sense that the psalmist wonders whether Israel's unfaithfulness to the covenant means that God has turned his back on them because we see has his anger shut out his compassion. His anger is in response to their unfaithfulness. He wonders whether God in his anger has permanently rejected them. This is a cliffhanger. This is drama. This is drama in the text. The psalmist is entering a bottomless pit of despair. The situation is so bleak, the trouble is so thick that he begins to question what he has been taught since he was born. Since he was a young man, he's been taught of God's faithfulness, that he is one God and that he is a faithful God. And now he has to question it. These are serious questions with far-reaching implications. Should we ask these sort of questions? I mean, maybe you're reading this and you're silently, you know, wanting to rebuke the psalmist. You inspired person of God to write the very words of God. Don't you know better than this? Haven't you been to Sunday school? If we're being honest, we know that these questions are normal in a situation when someone is experiencing sustained suffering. If God abandoned his people, then he would not answer his prayer. And that would be a reasonable explanation for what happened. That would be an option to explain what happened here. Uh, as an aside, we'll get to it. That's not what happened. So just in case you're wondering, like, that's not what happened. God is good. He is faithful. We'll see that. But as a side note, we should be careful about falling into a sort of Instagram version of Christianity. You know, on Instagram, everyone always has their best day, right? It's like your best hair day. You just 
did really well on your test for school. I mean, your doctor's appointment was great. You've got the grandkids over. It's effortless, right? Everything's great. You nailed the recipe. If you've ever tried a recipe, sometimes they don't turn out right. And sometimes you just have to put them away and order Panera. (laughs) Don't know if you've ever been there, but uh, you don't put that on Instagram. You put it when it looks good and you get the lighting just right to hit it just right so that things look fantastic. But a Christianity where the only appropriate emotional response to any and all situations is happiness is not true Christianity. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 16, 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Faithfulness to God is not faking happiness. It is real. It is perseverance and hope because of Jesus in spite of the trouble. We may think that a superficial happiness makes God look good, but it can actually minimize his impact because what we are experiencing seems to be pretty minimal. I mean, if it didn't matter to you, if you're just impervious to it, if it was just a nothing thing, then you know, you didn't even really need God for that, right? I mean, you, you stubbed your toe, you spilled some milk on the ground. That's not a big deal. That doesn't show God is great. I spilled milk on the ground and persevered. God is shown to be great when he gets us through difficulty. Remember, we, are, we can be sorrowful yet rejoicing. There can be both. There can be real honest feelings of sadness, of hurt, of grief, and at the same time, strong confidence in who God is and what he's doing to get us through. Importantly, we see that the pain and distress that the psalmist is enduring did not cause him to turn from God, but to continue seeking God and to grapple with the implications of his situation. So he's reviewed one possible option. He's not satisfied. He still wants to know, how do I answer this question? He continues. Point three, reflect on God's actions for proof of his character. He thought once again about happier times that God's people experience. And this time he was encouraged. Earlier when he thought on God's works, it led him to question God's faithfulness. Now after some additional reflection, he sees that God's work provide ample evidence of his faithfulness. Notice the shift in pronouns from I and me in the earlier part of the Psalms to more references to God and what he has done in the later part of the Psalm. Verses 11 and 12 just double down and emphasize what he's doing. He's remembering his deeds and wonders of old. He's pondering all of God's work. God's way is holy. Holiness means to be set apart, to be different, to be distinct. God is a holy God. He's also a great God. No one is great like him. 
That means he has no rivals. I enjoy basketball. I'm an NBA guy. I watch a lot of commentary. Michael Jordan is widely considered to be the GOAT, the greatest of all time when it comes to basketball players. And if you ever watch these commentators, some think it's crazy to compare others to MJ because of his record. MJ went to six NBA finals and he won every time. He did have a team, maybe, but he won. And he got the NBA finals MVP every single time. He was so dominant that he never let those series even get to a game seven. He is six for six in NBA finals. An unblemished record. Now, you know, at the same time, millions of people are playing the same game. And guys like LeBron have gotten close and he's still playing. People are getting bigger, faster, stronger. They're shooting better. They're staying healthier and taking command of their own careers. Eventually, someone will surpass MJ. It is only a matter of time. That will never happen with God. No one's even playing the same sport. I mean, I mean, this is not even the same. This is so different. He has no rivals. Unlike the other so-called gods, he works miracles. These other gods were idols created in a craftsman's workshop. Now today we're a bit more sophisticated. Instead of being created in a workshop, they're thought up in our own minds. But they're still idols. They're not the true and living God. It's something we just make up in our own head or someone else makes up. But the true God, the living God, is not dependent on us for his survival or happiness. Instead, here's the greatness of God. He shows his strength on behalf of his weak people. He does unprecedented things. He makes known his might amongst the people. God is not a regional God. The true God who made everything is everywhere. He deserves worship not just from one group, but from all groups. He also shows his might by keeping his promise to redeem his people. He works his mighty works for the good of his people and for the sake of his name. Here is the answer to the psalmist's question. God saved the children of Jacob and Joseph. It shows that he is faithful to his promises. It shows that he hasn't turned his back on his people. He did what he said he would do. And if he has done that in the past, he'll surely do it in the future. He kept true to his word. That is his character, steadfast love and faithfulness. Friend, where do you turn to when you wonder about God's character? Do you turn to the Bible to let God speak for himself? Now, God has chosen to reveal himself to his creation. He has never been aloof, uninvolved, or uninterested. 
looking at the world around us, we can learn something about who he is. He is strong and wise enough to create everything and have all of these intricate pieces of creation work together so perfectly. I mean, you learned about the water cycle in school. Kids, I don't know if you're still awake, but there's this thing called the water cycle. I mean, you got water in the ground, water is in oceans and lakes and rivers. And God makes that water go up into the sky. It goes and becomes clouds. It floats around. It drops water someplace else. They didn't always have an irrigation system or like sprinklers or something. God makes the water fall so that we can have crops. This is what God does in creation. This is wisdom and power and might and forethought beyond compare. His creation is so vast that there are countless people who get PhDs just to explore some small sliver of it, and there's always more to discover. It's not a thing where once you get a PhD in biology, well, that's it, right? You just go home. That's all there is to know about biology, one person studying it for a long time. No, everyone can study these things for all of their life, and there is still more to see, and it shows how amazing God is. But even looking at creation, we need God's word to help us interpret what we see around us and who he is. We also need him to open our eyes so that we embrace this and embrace what we read about God rather than reject it. So friend, today when you read the Bible, read praying, read asking God to help you see who he is, what he has done to soften our hearts so that we're sensitive to him, that we hear his voice and we don't turn away. Point four. Fixate on God's salvation for proof of God's faithful love. The psalmist is no longer moaning and fainting as he remembers the Lord's deeds. Instead of the building feeling of despair from earlier in the psalm, now he is growing more and more excited and confident as he thinks on God and how he has been faithful to save his people. Compare that with earlier. He just seemed to get more and more weary. And now as he thinks on God and on his work, he's getting more and more excited, particularly as he's thinking about how God has saved his people. Of all the mighty deeds of God, the psalmist turns his attention to the Exodus. The children of Israel were in bondage for 400 years in Egypt, but God had not forgotten them. He raised up Moses as a deliverer, and after 10 plagues, Pharaoh finally let the people go. After the children of Israel left Pharaoh, Pharaoh had another change of heart. Pharaoh decides to chase them down to bring them back to Egypt. The Egyptians are on chariots chasing the Israelites until they hit a dead end at the Red Sea. They have nowhere to run. This is a tense moment. What will happen? Has God brought them out here just to have them perish? There's no way around. And that is when God does the impossible. He opens up a path for them 
through the Red Sea. He holds the waters in place and the Israelites walk across on dry ground until they make it safely to the other side. The Egyptians try to follow after them until God closes the Red Sea on top of them. God delivered his people. And instead of preventing any and all trouble, he brought Israel to and through the trouble and saved them in dramatic fashion. He was there with them, saving them and making them into a nation as God has promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, we can do the same thing today, thinking on God, thinking on his great salvation. While the Exodus was a great event to point to, particularly at this time in history, I mean, for Asaph, this would have been the um, foremost event when it comes to God saving his people, God being there, God being faithful. But we have something even greater to look to. We have the greater exodus to look to as Jesus saved the people for himself through the sacrifice on the cross and subsequent resurrection. God proved that he cared for us by sending the eternal son to earth to deliver mankind from the bondage of sin and death. We deserved his wrath. We rebel against his commands. All of us do whether we know his commands very well because we read the Bible or we just get a feeling in ourselves that I probably shouldn't do this, but I do it anyway, we all rebel against God and we deserve his punishment. But he sent his own son to take that punishment on our behalf. As dramatic as the scene was at the Red Sea, the deliverance provided by Jesus was even more dramatic. Just as the Egyptians thought they had the Israelites captured, Jesus' enemies thought they had him defeated when he died on the cross. They had the perfect plan. They got one of his main guys, Judas. They got him. Judas agrees to uh, turn his back and betray Jesus. They go get Jesus. The disciples even try to fight. Jesus says, don't, don't do it. That's not why I'm here. They give him a sham of a trial. They falsely accuse him and they put him to death. Jesus' enemies thought they won. They thought that was it. We've defeated him. Now we can continue with our agenda. But Jesus raised himself from the dead, bodily, three days later. He is now reigning in heaven as the rightful king, offering salvation to all who would come to him. Remember, he's not just the God of Israel. He is the God of all, and he is offering salvation to all. Christian, cherish what Christ has done on your behalf. Fixate on this. Think on this. Let this be something that you just continue to mull over in your mind and in your heart. The psalmist seems to get very excited as he described the Exodus. It is so vivid to him. He's clearly thought about this and read on this. This is deep within him. 
the gospel should be even more precious to us. The good news of Jesus and what he's done is not the remedial class of Christianity. The gospel is not the entrance to Christianity. It is the foundation of the very building. It is what everything else is built upon. How do we know that God is for us? Because he sent his son to die for us when we could not save ourselves, when we were his enemies. He sent his son to die. Hear Jesus' words in Matthew eleven, twenty-eight through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God does not promise an easy life where every day is a life at the beach. Every day is easy. Every day is calm. And guess what? That's us. We, we live a life that is full of difficulty. And he, he can take that on. You don't have to carry that burden yourself. We serve a God who loves us and who can take that yoke on himself and give you one in comparison that leads you to life. So at the cross, we get definitive answers to the questions that Asaph raised. God clearly does not spurn forever. God is gracious. He sent his son when we didn't deserve it. He still has steadfast love. He proved that faithfulness to us. He has kept and will keep his promises. And God's anger and wrath are satisfied. At the cross, God's wrath was satisfied. In punishing Jesus, all who come to him don't have to face God's wrath. Now notice there's no mention of a change in circumstances. There's no specific answer written down here from the Lord, whether vocal or otherwise. At the same time, the psalmist goes from uncomfortable to confident by the end of the psalm by shifting his focus away from the trouble he's enduring and on to the God who saved them. Let's follow the author's lead. In closing, turn to Habakkuk 3, 17 through 18. If you're ever looking for another part of the scripture, maybe you're thinking that, okay, this is kind of a limited thing where, you know, sometimes some people experience a little bit of trouble, but for the most part, things are happy and fine. Read Habakkuk. It's a short book. And he is troubled because Israel is suffering. Israel is being punished. And God's response to that is, guess what? I'm going to use a people that is more wicked than you guys are. You guys are wicked. I'm going to use someone even more wicked than you to punish you. And Habakkuk is just like, I don't, <laughs> I don't understand here, God. You've got you to gotta talk to me here. You've got to do something. This doesn't make sense. This isn't right. This isn't fair. I thought you were just. Yet as he's going back and forth with God, similar to how Asaph is, he's wrestling, he's grappling. At the end, this is what we see from Habakkuk. Though the fig tree should not blossom, 
nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stall. So that's almost all of the physical promises that God gave to Israel. That's, that's almost everything. All of the physical things that are great and fantastic and they enjoyed, he's saying all of that may be gone. But even in that, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And, and don't miss this last part. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Look to God. Remember his salvation. He is mighty to save. And because he saved, we know that he is faithful and true. And he will bring us all the way home. Amen. Let's turn to God. Gracious God, we are overwhelmed by your goodness, by your faithfulness in spite of our faithlessness. When what we deserved was wrath, you gave us your son. He came down. He died on the cross when he was innocent. He died on our behalf. And now you and your grace have given salvation, made it freely available to all who would call on you. Lord, open our eyes to see our great neediness. Open our eyes to see your mighty hand, to see your steadfast love, your faithfulness. Lord, help us so that we don't wait another day, that we don't think that there is time to delay. Help us to turn to you now, to look to you now, that we would encourage one another now to keep our eyes focused on Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.